This episode of The Explainer is supported by Daft Advantage Ads. Selling a home is a huge financial decision, so make sure your property is on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what is happening in Sudan? Now, the African country has hit the headlines this month as violent clashes erupted between the armies of two powerful generals. One is the commander of the Sudanese armed forces and the other is the head of the Rapid Support Forces, a rival paramilitary group. Tensions have been growing between the two groups since a coup in 2021 derailed attempts to return the country to civilian rule. And those tensions came to a head in recent weeks. Hundreds of people have been killed and thousands wounded in the fighting. Many Western governments are now evacuating citizens from Sudan this week, including Ireland, which has so far evacuated around 90 people, but more are still in the country. The UN is warning that the violence in Sudan could potentially engulf the whole region and beyond and spark a humanitarian disaster. So how did Sudan get here? How has a tentative push for democracy resulted in a bloody power struggle between two military figures? And where could this lead? To look at all of this today, we're joined by Jahan Henry, a human rights lawyer who's worked with Human Rights Watch in Sudan. She's currently in Nairobi in Kenya. Jahan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Firstly, Jahan, for people who maybe aren't familiar with Sudan, what type of country is it? What's it like to live there? And what are the issues that people face on a day-to-day basis there? Right, so Sudan is a country that sits at the crossroads of the Middle East and Africa. It's just south of Egypt, but it's also on the Red Sea. It has a port on the Red Sea. Uh, And uh, to the south is South Sudan that became independent in 2011. And then it's also got uh, Libya, Chad and Central African Republic, sort of more Sahel uh, area to, to its west. Um, Sudan is probably best known for the conflict in Darfur that erupted in the early 2000s and was labeled a genocide by uh, many international figures uh, and uh, resulted in in, uh, the International Criminal Court issuing arrest warrants for then President Omar al-Bashir and others for genocide. Um, But aside from that conflict that really brought Sudan into the headlines of world news at that time. Um, Sudan actually has, you know, a very interesting long uh, history since its independence in 1956. Um, It it was under British colonial rule and British joint British-Egyptian colonial rule uh, for many decades. And um, it is a place where but Sudanese people are, are sort of reputedly, uh, they're known worldwide to be among the most generous and kind uh, people. And uh, everybody who visits Sudan talks about how generous and host- you know, so much hospitality from Sudanese. Um, and, you know, there's a rich culture in Sudan, uh, despite its many different ethnic groups, um, you know, the ethnicities of communities in the far north uh, near Egypt, completely different from those in the west near Darfur and in Khartoum. So you have huge diversity in Sudan. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, it it is a place that I think has enormous charm. um, And although it has struggled with economic development, particularly since uh, al-Bashir's regime, but even 
prior, um, its economic development has been quite stunted and it has, um, you know, a lot of the sort of uh, colonial structures uh, are still there, but uh, a lot of the, the systems that, um, that uh, have been, you know, so important for public services, healthcare, education, and so on and so forth have really degraded uh, in the past few decades. So, I mean, is it a place where I would want to live? I've lived in Sudan. Many people love living in Sudan. Um, I, you know, I think that it it is um, in some ways quite a difficult place to live. I mean, it's very hot, <laughs> power cuts, and during the transition, of course, uh, with the economic uh, uh, deterioration, uh, I saw inflation uh, just skyrocketing, and we had a lot of power cuts. Um, and you know the price of you know the price of basic goods had had gone up, and and so it became more difficult for everyone to be in Sudan um, with the economic problems that that came about um, you know right before Al Bashir's ouster, and and uh, sort of exacerbated even after that. And I know a lot of people in this part of the world may not be too familiar with the intricacies of politics in Sudan. Is it possible to sum it up? Well, it is an incredibly complex environment, but at the end of the day, uh, it really is sort of a battle between these two generals, as you described. There is a power struggle happening. Uh, It is sort of a struggle for the fate of the country and how the country should be ruled. There are many sort of things to say about their motivations and 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 which forces uh, you know are, want what and and their makeup and so forth. Um, but it is a story of an, an attempted transition to democracy, but with many errors along the way and many unaddressed underlying problems, really. Um, that then came back to to provoke uh, more tensions and ultimately resulted in this fighting, which is beyond horrific and beyond everyone's sort of worst predictions. And those tensions that you mentioned, what is the nature of them and how did they emerge? Let's start in 2019. That's a good starting point because it was one of the big historical moments of change where uh, the former longtime military autocratic ruler, Omar al-Bashir, an army man, was deposed from his position as the head of the government uh, after some 30 years. Um, and this was on the back of months and months of nationwide protests um, by protesters who were protesting not only al-Bashir himself, but a range of sort of economic problems, um, dissatisfaction with so many of the policies of al-Bashir's Islamist government, um, mismanagement of the economy, um, wars in the peripheries, in Darfur, most famously, but then also in the Nuba Mountains and southern Kordofan and and Blue Nile, which are states in what is now Sudan's southernmost reaches, Uh, and also tensions in the east and elsewhere. So the protest movement had a lot of fuel, and it culminated in a sit-in protest near the army headquarters in the middle of Khartoum, And it attracted thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all over the country who basically sat in and camped out for weeks on end. And under this popular pressure, um, al-Bashir was finally ousted. 
and he was detained. Uh, now, it's, it bears mentioning that he is also wanted by the International Criminal Court for um, international crimes in Darfur that he oversaw and is accused by that court of genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes. So what was his role then in the Darfur genocide? He hasn't really been brought to task on any of these allegations, has he? No, he hasn't been handed over to The Hague, um, despite many, many years of, of demands for that. Uh, but he has been detained after he was ousted back in 2019 by the Sudanese authorities, by the army at the time. And he was held in military uh, custody while well, he was transferred to the regular prison, supposedly, with about 20 of his colleagues, high-ranking people in his government, and held in, in, you know, in, in that jail for the last uh, four years. It's only recently, about two days ago, news broke that these guys had all been freed. They broke out of the prison where they were held. Now, the army then clarified the day, a day later that, in fact, they aren't free, but they are still in custody, but in a different location. So who knows really what that means, where they are. But what we do know is that no one's been handed over to the ICC. Um, and, and it's not just Bashir. It's also three other guys at this point. So this really gives an indication of the personality types here. He's a force to be reckoned with, isn't he? Right. I mean, well, he's been detained, but he's he's clearly got allies. And one of the narratives that uh, we should sort of explain is that one of the main reasons why this transition, this experiment to transition to democracy really didn't work is that it was upset by al-Bashir's allies, the, the former uh, rulers of the country who are Islamist in, in nature, and, and that is their agenda, and that is their affiliation, and they want power. And they are among those men who were detained, actually, and supposedly are still in custody, but we don't know anything about really where they are. Certainly, there's been a lot of social media from that side basically warmongering and encouraging this fight, probably in the hopes that the Sudanese army would win and they consider the army to be their ally and their vehicle for getting back into power. So that that it, that is an important dynamic to explain here because back to 2019, what happened is al-Bashir was ousted. The military uh, set up an immediate council, a transitional council to take over. And it was another two months before they agreed to share power with civilians. Now, at that time, during that two-month period, the protesters at that sit-in camp that I talked about remained camped out. And then in June, there was a horrific massacre that was led by both the army and the rapid support forces paramilitary, uh, whose head, by the way, was in that military transitional council. Uh, so, so the head of the, of the paramilitary rapid support forces is part of this army leadership and part of the army infrastructure, uh, number two to be specific. So, so the head of the RSF and the head of the, the army uh, in that council, who now we know is Al-Borhan. At the time, we didn't know he would end up being the, the, the head for so long. Uh, but in any case, they oversaw this horrific massacre of protesters that ended up killing over 120 people in cold blood on the last day of Ramadan in 2019. So that's sort of the backdrop to then what happened, which was the civilian leadership rushed to negotiate with the military 
figures. Uh, and there were international mediators involved trying to facilitate this. And there was uh, a deal that they brokered that was quite a complicated deal. It was quite a surprising deal, actually. And it took a long time for the world to understand it. It was a formula whereby the military and the civilian leaders would share power on this sovereign council um, and that after and that they would share this power for 39 months. And then after uh, sort of 18 months, the military uh, would hand the chair of it over to the civilians. Um, that never happened. And uh, we can say, in retrospect, perhaps there was never any intention to actually abide by any of these terms. Um, so this, this was the agreement that formed the basis for the transitional government that led Sudan in this very fragile and uneasy sort of arrangement for more than two years. Uh, and, and if we fast forward now to October 2021, uh, tensions had been brewing uh, between the civilians and the military for many, many months. So many things didn't happen. Foremost among them was any kind of accountability for that June massacre and for subsequent killings of protesters. Some well over 300 uh, lives, uh, protesters' lives were, were lost uh, from the revolution until late 2021. So the push for democracy in Sudan, it may be very fragile, but it is a small group clearly motivated in that purpose. If you look at the rapid support forces then that you mentioned, how have they gained influence along the way here? Yeah, so as a, as another sort of point of background, yeah, the, the rapid support forces were actually created by the SAF, by Omar al-Bashir uh, in 2013 in order to help that uh, government uh, put down rebellions and to fight these battles internally in Darfur and in these other locations I mentioned. And they were essentially an outgrowth of what we used to call the Janjaweed, uh, which is a, mil a militia force, a pro-government militia force that the Sudanese government created and armed and used to fight its battles in Darfur during the height of the conflict there. Um, and it is Janjaweed leaders who were included in those who were, uh, you know, wanted by the ICC uh, and uh, have been named in many, many documents uh, over the years uh, in terms of, sort of culpability for, for so many civilian deaths uh, in, in Darfur. Uh, so these Janjaweed groups uh, basically morphed into what is now called the Rapid Support Forces under the leadership of a then young um, uh, up-and-coming uh, uh, commander called Mohamed uh, Dagalo, Hameti for short. And Hameti is now sort of the most famous person in Sudan. He's the leader of the RSF. And the question, how did he become so powerful? Well, after the creation of the RSF, he was able very shrewdly to use his position to uh, obtain, uh, you know, access to gold mines uh, and to uh, send people from his, among his ranks to off to the war in Yemen uh, at the behest of the UAE uh, uh, for money. Uh, and he was able to therefore recruit large numbers of young men uh, from marginalized parts of the country, but especially from his own ethnic group, 
which are, you know, nomadic, largely Arab communities in, in Darfur. Uh, so we have the RSF composed of these uh, people who are also members of the Janjaweed. Uh, and uh, they are now in, in very large numbers, uh, estimated to be between 70 and 100,000. Um, and he, he has accumulated his wealth through the gold and other family businesses. Livestock is also uh, one of his businesses. And uh, he has really risen up uh, in prominence. He also took it upon himself to uh, preside over the peace negotiations in Juba uh, that led to something called the Juba Peace Agreement, which was happening simultaneously as the formation of the transitional government after al-Bashir was deposed. And given, Jahan, that you worked on that process, can you tell me there really was a genuine sense of hope then at one stage that democracy was possible? There was. There was an enormous, yeah, there was an enormous sense of optimism. Uh, this is this was so groundbreaking to have al-Bashir be out of of his position to be deposed and in jail. And you had these civilian leaders who had basically, I believe, under the duress of that June massacre, negotiated this very complicated deal that was all too easily manipulated. Um, you know, but but it was still nonetheless, you know, the civilians had emerged as their own sort of force. Um, and they were, you know, they were able to take position. There was a civilian prime minister, Abdullah Hamdok, who was appointed in August of 2019. And he shortly thereafter appointed his cabinet. Uh, the, the, the transitional government and these civilian leaders came in, in in September and they took up offices and they started to run ministries and they set up something called the the anti-Tamkeen committee is what we called it. It's basically a, a special committee to dismantle the former regime of al-Bashir. And that committee's work was extraordinarily sensitive, but it was also a project led by the civilian rulers, uh, the civilian politicians who came in. So clearly there was a real push to demilitarize the country. How did the RSF fit into that plan then? They were supposed to be assimilated into the state military. Right. So at the beginning, when al-Bashir was ousted, Hameti, the head of the RSF, made many statements to the effect of he would be with the people and pro-democracy. Um, but it, he was, in fact, allied with the military. He was number two to al-Borhan. Al-Borhan was the chair of the military council. Hameti was his deputy. Uh, they were in alliance at that time. They both paid lip service to the idea of a democratic transition for Sudan. They both promised to hand power over to civilians. They even promised us as Human Rights Watch visiting early uh, in 2020, that they would hand over those wanted by the ICC to The Hague. They made a lot of promises uh, in line with the language of the transition, the transitional constitutional document and all of the documents that, that described what the transition meant to do, all of its goals and its timelines. And one can argue that those documents weren't nearly detailed enough, but um, you know they, they were in place, they were agreed. There was a kind of consensus constitutional sort of uh, con constituent assembly, if you if you want to call it that. At the time, you had enough civilians um, coming in and sort of agreeing to this to this deal. Thinking of selling? Choose a Daft Advantage ad to guarantee unbeatable visibility, attract more buyers, and get the best price for your home. 
ask your estate agent for a Daft Advantage ad today. And what exactly do you think contributed then to this current deterioration of things if things were essentially going pretty well? uh, Is this just the usual power grab that we've come to expect from military figures? Well, I mean, things weren't really going that well, but very soon after the transition came into power, the transitional government came into power, there were signs that things weren't really going well. By the time I arrived late uh, 2020, it, that was when the Juba Peace Agreement uh, had been signed. And the Juba Peace Agreement, just to explain, uh, is was in parallel to the formation of this transitional government. It was meant to forge a peace deal between the transitional powers and the rebels in Darfur and elsewhere who had been fighting with the al-Bashir regime. It was meant to bring them into the fold, as it were, and to make them part of the transition. So that peace deal was signed in October 2020, and it was very contentious. Uh, It was actually uh, one of the first things that I saw when when I went to Khartoum that month, uh, was sort of a big debate about how the Juba Peace Agreement can be incorporated into the transitional government and who, who would get which position. It, it really ushered in a, a new sort of layer of confusion and points for um, for dissent and arguing. So things were not going well. And the dismantling committee that I mentioned earlier, whose goal was to dismantle the former regime, they were becoming increasingly uh, provocative to the the moneyed powers that be to the old regime and even to the army and to the RSF because they were starting to talk about divesting the armed forces of their private companies and all of the the money that was coming in. And so you saw the civilians sort of pushing the envelope and the military were starting to freak out. And what happened was in October 2020, Al-Burhan staged a unilateral coup against the entire transitional project, and he dissolved all of the civilian positions. And Hameti, the head of the RSF, was right there with him, side by side. So even though both of them had already said, professed their allegiance to the democratic project and said that they would cooperate with justice, et cetera, in reality, they didn't. And they both uh, made this argument that they had to do this coup in order to salvage uh, the, the country to save the transition because it had gone off course and that they just needed to come in, control everything, and then eventually would put things back on course. At least that was the thinking. So after that coup, um, it was very difficult for, for anybody to support anything in Sudan anymore. The Western aid was frozen um, you know, there was basically uh, a hands-off, complete hands-off of Sudan approach for a while until uh, until as time sort of went by and, and, you know, everybody sort of saw that things were going back to, in a way, back to, to the al-Bashir era was the fear, you know, that the, 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 the military rulers were actually reversing the work of the dismantling committee. They were re-empowering the armed forces. They were um, freezing all of the, the law reforms and they were stalling on all of these difficult areas of reform. So it didn't look like it could be possible to really put the transition back on track. But I think, you know, the the UN for on um, you know I, I'm I'm not working with the UN but you know I could speculate that they probably thought you know well we've got to do something what can we do so they set about trying to facilitate talks between 
the Sudanese um, civilians who, you know, who still wanted to, you know, who were disgusted with the whole thing, but wanted to come back into power um, and the military. So that is where we sort of come to today. Those talks really <laughs> didn't work. A number of sticking points, um, including the security sector reform that you've alluded to, were just complete no-go uh, zones. Uh, the, the military didn't even attend some of the workshops about security sector reform uh, that the UN and others were trying to convene. Um, and the conversations sort of between the, the two sides uh, among the sort of political elites and the military um, were very superficial, very much dancing around all of the hard issues, basically just trying to put a fig leaf on the whole thing and give hope that, okay, maybe something. It was all wishful thinking or it was just a show for the West. So, Jahan, when we look at these conflicts, they play out in many different regions and invariably it ends up being about identity of sorts, maybe religious identity a lot of the time. But that doesn't seem to be a factor here. I know there are religious elements, but it's fundamentally just about power, is it, between two power hungry military men? I would call it. I would agree completely with that. Yeah, I do think it's a power struggle. I think they're using religion. They're using the language of religion where it's convenient, and they're using the language of democracy and human rights where it's convenient. But at the end of the day, we've seen no commitment to to the democratic project on the side of the military. Um, and w- in terms of sort of religion, I think the big fear by pretty much everyone is that Al Bashir and his cohort. Uh, who had always professed to be Islamists, right? Uh, whether or not they truly are, uh, you know, I mean, one wonders why all the bombing happens on the last day of Ramadan and during the Eid. Uh, but uh, no, it's not about genuine religion at all. They were using sort of political Islam as part of their power um, uh, back, you know, in, during his regime, during Bashir's regime. And, and this goes back to sort of Sudanese political Islam as is a, a long-term project that, uh, the, you know, was really, uh, there's a, a famous uh, politi- Islamist politician called Hassan al-Turabi who's passed away, but he was he was sort of the, the, the spokesperson for this ideology for decades and decades. And there was at that time, you know, this, a huge drive to create uh, this Islamic political, you know, state in Sudan. And it was a big experiment. Um, and so that's why, you know, there there is this fear, I think, by those in Sudan who who want to maintain Sudan's fundamental diversity and in many ways it's you know democratic nature um, and want to help pave the way for people to bring that into their own government um, and sort of and and on the other side is this sort of the the the, the drive of the the Islamists to regain and recapture power and to hold on to their assets and and what they had um, before and to continue with that that project that Islamist experiment in Sudan. So this is this is an important sort of context I think to understand that religion is really a tool for for power. Um, and now with this this transition, we have a lot of, um, uh, you know, we have Hameti speaking about human rights and democracy. And, and surely that's also a tool for his power, because we certainly don't see his forces uh, observing even even remotely the most basic, uh, you know, human rights principles in, in their behavior. Uh, they, they're true to form uh, the way they've behaved in Darfur and elsewhere. 
they are looting, assaulting, raping, killing uh, in, in, on the streets in Khartoum, uh, just as the Sudanese army, true to its form, is bombing indiscriminately without any regard for, you know, hospitals, schools, homes. So you see the, 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 the tendencies that we've seen in evidence in Darfur and elsewhere are now in the capital city. Um, and that's really, it's showing their true colors. And uh, I don't think this is truly about anything other than, you know, their quest for controlling the, the, the country and, and the fate of the country really hangs in the balance now. And as often happens, I know in these conflicts, those people in Khartoum and in those hospitals, they're vulnerable civilians and they've been let down by all sides now. Yes, they have. I mean, one of the amazing things about Sudan, of course, is the resistance committees, uh, which is sort of these neighborhood groupings who were spearheading the, the, the protests and who really have um, rallied neighborhood by neighborhood to help each other, help citizens, residents in the neighborhood. And you have volunteers in the medical establishment who have gone to the hospitals and said they won't leave as long as there are patients in need. It's incredibly, incredibly inspiring to see how Sudanese people come together in times of need. And knowing that the international community really isn't there for them, these evacuations that have just happened focused initially on, you know, at least in the case of the United States, they evacuated their embassy staff. And that's it. Um, And now the hope is maybe they'll evacuate others. Now other countries have had more open policies and um, we've seen, you know, other nations evacuating Sudanese as well. Um, so, you know, any in any event, the evacuations have really taken the headlines, but they only take a fraction of the people out who want to leave. Most Sudanese, of course, are left to their own devices. Thousands upon thousands are leaving. They've flooded the borders to the north in, in Egypt and to the south of the border of South Sudan and then with um, in the West, uh, we've got over 20,000 who fled to Chad, um, and, and thousands are also going to Port Sudan in the East, where they can get out, they hope to get out by boat. Um, and it just sounds very chaotic at these border points. Uh, but uh, the main thing is, you know, only people who have enough resources to pay the fuel or to get the bus tickets can make this journey. Um, And people, you know, presumably they have friends or relatives or people in other places where they can stay and wait this out. But the vast majority of Sudanese are still in Sudan and they're trying to make do uh, with with what little they have as the the resources dwindle, power supplies, um, money, food, water. People are reporting these are all uh, in dwindling supply. So, um, you know, this is a very concerning situation as long as there aren't, you know, aid corridors coming through. And this is why the main focus right now needs to be a ceasefire and getting humanitarian aid in in some organized fashion. And it should be supervised by some entity that's some neutral entity so that uh, the two sides can't manipulate the aid, which is we've seen, of course, over and over again in history. Do you think it's becoming clear now that this region is on the brink of a major humanitarian crisis? I know the UN is warning of that this week, the US trying to push for greater ceasefire, but the scale of this is phenomenal. 
Yeah, it is a phenomenal scale. And I think, you know, the aid agencies are struggling now to figure out how to work on getting aid in. I mean, a ceasefire is the first step. But meanwhile, all of these people at the borders uh, needing help and getting stuck with these at the Egyptian border. I'm hearing that the Egyptians are being real sticklers with yellow fever cards and whatnot for people who fled without even their documents. So it's very difficult. And they're having to stay at the border for days and days while they look for solutions. And so there, there's there's obviously huge need at these border points, but then in the countries where they flee to, um, there there is a huge need and, and um, people apparently are reaching Cairo and now sort of staying on the streets. You know, they're desperate for some form of assistance. So the aid agencies all have to rally to this new uh, reality here um, and, and, and getting aid into the country, of course, And with the ceasefire in mind, how could this potentially come about? Could we see something like these two military leaders offered exile somewhere? We've seen that play out before. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's difficult to speculate on what the terms could be of a deal, of a political deal. I think right now, just getting them to hold on to a ceasefire uh, to observe it, I mean, uh, and to allow some monitoring and aid in, that is sort of the, the immediate priority. Uh, how a sort of a deal could take shape is another question. For sure, Sudanese people are not going to welcome a repeat of the power-sharing arrangement that came right after al-Bashir's ouster. Um, that sort of arrangement, I think, was too fragile, too complex, and has wholly disappointed people. Um, And the arrangement that was being attempted in the lead up to this violence was more or less a repeat of that, uh, although nominally it gave uh, the civilians more power. Um, There were so many loopholes in the framework agreement that that led to these tensions. It's one of the reasons why the violence broke out was that the deal they were discussing had so many loopholes and and differences in interpretation. Uh, What they argued about the most toward the end was security sector reform, who would be in charge of whom, Um, what did it mean for uh, RSF to be integrated into the SAF over what time period, organized by who, etc. So these were all, uh, you know, subject to totally different interpretations. And, um, you know, the there was certainly no guarantee that civilians would ever have been given actual power, real power. Uh, so I think anything looking forward needs to be centered on, you know, what what would be acceptable to the Sudanese people. Um, and figuring that the answer to that out is also a challenge in itself, um, because you can handpick a bunch of civilian leaders. That doesn't mean that they're going to have legitimacy. Um, But I do think we have some indications from what's happened in the past few years as to what civilians want and what they think a path to democracy should look like. Now, whether the the military leaders can be um, be part of that, under what terms they can be part of that is a completely open question at the moment. And I haven't really heard rumors yet about the idea of sort of giving them exile. But certainly when it comes to accountability for the atrocity crimes that we're witnessing now and that we've seen for many decades in Sudan, 
um, you know, I, I believe that accountability, the absence of accountability is one of the reasons why these things fall apart and lead to violence again. So I would argue that some form of accountability is an essential component of any sort of lasting peace deal going forward. And I know when we look at these types of military conflicts, there are often global powers with some skin in the game. Um, there have been talks recently of Russia, the US, Saudi Arabia here, and you did mention the UAE earlier. Where do they all figure in this? Yeah, well, they all have interests in Sudan. I mean, Sudan, I think it bears reminding that it is in a strategic place, sort of lying at, at, between the Middle East and Africa and bordering the Red Sea and the Sahel. Uh, and uh, it, there is every reason for uh, a country to want Sudan to be its partner. And of course, the Red Sea with its port there is strategic. And, you know, it, the way it borders Libya and Egypt is also very important for stability in the region, not to mention the Central African Republic. So uh, let's start with Russia. It has been uh, cozying up to these countries in Africa now for the last several years. Um, the infamous uh, Wagner group, uh, a mercenary group that has uh, been uh, active now in, in many parts of Africa is present in Sudan, as well as neighboring Central African Republic, for example. And in, in the case of Sudan, uh, is involved in, in gold business, gold uh, extraction and processing. So we have that relationship. And Hameti did go to Russia just at the beginning of the Ukraine war um, and, uh, you know, sort of indicating it's it, he, his relationship with the, the, the authorities in Russia are important. Uh, and, uh, of course, that, that's probably linked to what's going on with, with gold and, and Wagner. Um, we also have, you know, the Gulf countries. So the UAE have in the past cooperated with Hameti and the RSF, especially when it came to recruiting soldiers for the war in Yemen. It is also a, a place where gold is exported to uh, from Sudan. It's a gold hub. And we have Saudi Arabia, which is also in the coalition, of course, uh, for the, in the Yemen war. Um, and both countries, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, are places where Sudanese for decades and decades have gone to work and to send back remittances to Sudan. Uh, Sudanese professionals, doctors, professors, um, they were heavily relied upon in the Gulf to help build the Gulf states. Uh, so we have already a long legacy of sort of Sudanese in the Gulf. And Egypt, of course, is supportive of the staff, the Sudanese armed forces, so Al-Borhan. So we have, um, you know, we have all this, the, a constellation of different alliances and potentials for uh, expanding the war. I think people are most concerned about the role of Egypt. They worry some, there is a narrative in Sudan that Egypt has always wanted to colonize Sudan because of the Nile waters and because of the fertile lands and because of the incredible population pressures that Egypt experiences. Um, and that Sudan is just sort of its backyard waiting to be exploited by the Egyptians. And now what, whether you believe this narrative or, or not, it, it is certainly a perception. And Egypt has uh, 
very much made it, it clear that it, it supports Burhan. And so you it wants a military ally in Sudan. It doesn't want to have democratic Sudan. And in fact, nobody really wants a democratic Sudan except for the Sudanese themselves and um, their Western Western countries involved in the in, in Sudan for many, many years are also the United States in particular has also been such a champion of democracy in Sudan and the EU as well. But, you know, the, this this agenda ha, is probably um, sort of, uh, you know, this is the, this agenda is the first sacrifice, I think, in these other geopolitical dynamics, as we're seeing now. Um, so, yeah, lots of different interests in the country and lots of opportunities for the conflict to spread. And it, it could be incredibly dire. And Sudanese tell me they worry that their country is going to turn into another Libya with sort of militias backed by different powers, all fighting for, for, for bits and pieces of the country. And that would be just you know, beyond unimaginable tragedy. Uh, Sudan, as I was saying, is, is strategic and has, you know, uh, ha there's just so much potential in that country, so much history. Um, and whatever people say about identity, Sudan has an identity. And, you know, it's about now the fight for power is manipulating aspects of this identity. But the Sudanese people and the, the you know, the protesters, the resistance committees, they know who they are and they know what Sudan is. And, um, and I think, you know, from my perspective, it's about finding ways to let their vision, um, uh, let their vision become a reality uh, and, and try to stave off these possibility for widening the conflict. Oh, it's deeply depressing uh, for all of the people in Sudan. And as you say, very hard to hold out any hope at the moment. Uh, Jehan, thanks so much for joining us today and shedding some light on all of this for us. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft Advantage Ads the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Looking to get the best price for your home? Ask your estate agent for a Daft Advantage ad today. Thanks again to Jehan Henry for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producer Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.